Hello and welcome to Under the Skin from Luminary. This week I spoke with Thomas Frank. Thomas Frank is a political analyst, historian and journalist. He is author of People, No! A Brief History of Anti-Populism. In this book he examines the origin of the term populism in the United States and discusses historical examples of populism, its adherents and detractors. Now time for comments. Here are some comments on the Nick Corbushley episode, Kiwi Jeff. Nice to see more people realise where we're headed. I'm an old punk from the 80s. What's he talking about? Nick Corbushley? Yeah. He's talking about like digital IDs and mm. all that. Well, Kiwi Jeff's an old punk from the 80s. And I learned, says Kiwi Jeff, I learned back then not to talk about this stuff. No one wanted to know. Now they are. Now they're learning about things that they that have been planned for way longer than you think fish and chips. He didn't say fish and chips. Fish and chips is how you get into a New Zealand. Is the thing where you read the next line? Well, no, just say fish and chips because that's how fish and chips, that's how they talk. If you want to know the difference between New Zealand people talking and Australian people talking fish and chips, that's I can tell. You can tell straight away? Yeah, because they have smaller vowels. New Zealanders. What an Australian. Like that. Yeah, that's true. Uh, sorry for being reductive about your culture. Luke Erickson. This is why in the last two years I took up woodworking and gardening and spending much time outdoors around a fire, being less dependent on anything. Wise, Luke. Very wise. Very wise. Have you done that? Have you? I went for a 10 kilometre run. That's good. The old knees are working then. Yeah, finally. Yeah? It was nice. I actually enjoyed a moment of life. <laughs> but you enjoyed a moment of life. Which bit? The whole run. That's a long moment, 10K. Yeah. What did that take you, an hour? Like 56 minutes, isn't it? It's an impressive time. So you, you sustained a good time. You didn't get injured. I didn't get competitive at myself. Why? I didn't have the woman telling me every kilometre how fast I was going. Oh, well, she pipes out. What's that on Strava yeah, or one of them Strava. apps? Strava. And then I get a bit of stress. I'm still paying for that app and I've not used it for a while. The thing is with those apps, yeah, you don't want her straight. Well, she go, you've done it in. What's a good like, time for you? I want to get down back to five. I'm around five and a half at the moment. A five minute KM you're happy with? Yeah. When we were running, I was under five. Do you remember? Yeah, you bolted right off, Jen. You were <laughs> shooting off into the distance. Okay, here's a listener shout out. Shout out from an Apple Podcast review. Listen to shout outs. Gail Gordon. I just want to send love to you. Proper love your podcast, your perspectives, and the fact you give a shit. Can't express how much your encouragement has helped me, Gal. I love you. Thanks, Russell. Keep it going. Keep it real. Gal, I love you. If only you were in the United Kingdom, you could go to russellbrand.com and come and see me on tour. You could come to Carlisle or Blackpool and Bristol. These shows are absolutely fantastic. I back them. I'm doing live meditations there now. I'm doing questions and answers. It's, I'll tell you what, if you can come, get on russellbrand.com, get your ticket, come and see me live, be part of this movement. And if you're not a member of my mailing list, also sign up to the mailing list. I'll tell you all the live things. I've got a big event coming up soon. I keep teasing it, but imagine this. One day event. It's in July. Special guest. Try and guess who the special guest is. Do you know who it is? Yeah. Right. Well, you can't guess. You're can we give clues? What is the clue? Where, can we say if they were a guest on the podcast? They've been a guest on the podcast. Guess who the special guest is. That's it. That's all the clues you're getting. It's a really good event. Also... Look at my YouTube channel and subscribe to my side channel as well where I talk about spiritual stuff if you need a bit more of that kind of thing. But before we uh, bombard you with any more promotional activity, please listen to Under the Skin with Thomas Frank. I liked him. He was an enthusiastic dude, yeah, wasn't he? Yeah, was he was very enthusiastic. Did you guys know each other beforehand? Never met him before It was life. like you'd known each other forever at the beginning. 
Yeah, I know. He was. I really liked him. Like, uh, is this a reunion? It's not a reunion, but like, uh, you know, I did listen to his book. I'm not sure if he's reading it himself. I listened to his audio book. You know, I'm interested in populism because populism doesn't have to be nationalistic. It, do, it in fact, as Thomas Frank describes, it can only really be a liberal, well, like a left wing idea because it's about people should run their own lives, people should run their own communities. That's what it's about. So that's what it's not like right wing there as well. Oh shit! Isn't, it's so there's confusing. a new thing called left wing preppers because in the way right prepping was more a right wing thing. Ooh, what do you mean you're prepping? Prepping for off grid living. Oh god, we got prep. Are you prepping? <laughs> no food in my head. You got to prep. I would die if there was a sudden. Well, the pandemic did show. I had no food. I might die on the way home. <laughs> <laughs> you got to prep. Are you prepping? Why would you die on the way? I home? don't know. It might be Back a car out. accident. Oh no! Oh, please look after me, God. I've so much more to give. I want to stay alive. I want to be alive. In Don't the world. let anyone text when they're driving you. Don't let the driver text. Yes. Do you let them text? No. What do you say? Stop texting. How do you do it? Well, I'm the driver and I'm texting. Stop texting. You're gonna kill me. Well, you say that. <laughs> yeah. But you're in, are you in the back or are you sat next to them? I'm not their child. <laughs> Where do you sit? <laughs> well, are you in an Uber or no, are you a mate? No, a friend. All right, I'm your mate. I'm your. Who am I? <laughs> Can you not just be you? All right. <laughs> I'm just going to do some texts, Jen. Stop texting. Why? It's really bad. You're going to die. I can do both. And then that's on your conscience forever that you killed me. I wouldn't mind. I'd say it wasn't my fault. You wouldn't. You'd show up morose every day. I'd be morose. <laughs> I'd go, oh, I wish I'd done driven a bit better that day. What? Don't text and drive. How many times have I got to tell you? Yeah, we'll pack it in. You mustn't do it. Yeah, don't do it. Let's listen to Thomas Frank. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful route. Yes, that's, that's, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? And welcome to Russell Brand. Under the Skin. Thomas, I'm so glad that you've joined me on Under the Skin with what I would call an impeccable haircut and an airline pilot style headphones mouthpiece combo. Thank you, Russell. It's great to be here. The reason I'm interested in you, and this was before I met you, I hasten to add, is because uh, the subject of which you write is a, a vital uh, a vital one and one that sort of still may yet define our times. Populism. You're uh, a foremost authority on populism. Your book, uh, The People. No! A Brief History of Anti-Populism. I am my own italics there. Um, I think you... No, actually, no, yeah, you've not. it's not italicised in yours. And, and I do italics with shouting, Thomas. That's what I use for italics. That's, but that's that's how you're supposed to do it. <laughs> that's seriously. That's like the rules. Uh, I, I'm, uh, I, I've got it as a hard copy, as they say, and I've also been listening to the audio of your book. And the reason is, like, I'll tell you one reason. Some time ago, I see Steve Bannon addressing the Oxford Union, not in person. I just watched it on the internet. I'm, I'm not, a, I'm not a, a giddy fan of Steve Bannon or anything. But he arrived. He walked through the sort of protesting crowds in a raincoat like Columbo. You could almost hear the storm, the storm of discontent, as well as a literal meteorological one. And Tom, and, and he, Thomas, he, he began by saying none of you will ever own your homes and you're all getting like and this is the oxford union by the way so quite a lot of these kids are from affluent backgrounds none of you will ever and then he sort of tells the story of what happened after the uh, 2008 crash and uh, obama's decisions around quantitative easing and the lack of prosecution and then he uh, goes on to say populism is the future 
all we're deciding is whether it's right wing or left wing populism. So I thought, wow, this, this is an interesting moment that we find ourselves at. And now, uh, having uh, familiarised myself, thank you, Lauren, with your content, I'd, I want to know what you think for a start. Is Bannon right? Is populism the future? Are we just discussing which wing that we're going to yield to? So in in my opinion there there is no such thing as right wing populism. Ooh. There there are there are people who mimic it. Uh and Steve Bannon would be Donald Trump would be would be uh, you know people that I would you know I would list as as but populism is the, the sort of Jeffersonian tradition in American life. It is a it is a democratic left wing tradition. Uh you know it, it it is about building a mass movement a transracial mass movement of working class people for economic democracy. That's what it is. It's what it's always been. Uh, and it's a very powerful tradition. Now you've got, you know, this problem here in America that the democratic party, which is sort of the traditional bearer of populism, you know, this is the party of Franklin Roosevelt, Harry Truman, Lyndon Johnson, et cetera. Uh, that party has really turned its back on the populist tradition and wants nothing to do with it. And so what you've seen in its place is you've seen, and this has been going on since I was, um, I was a teenager, is, uh, is various right-wing politicians mimicking this tradition. Well, if the Democrats aren't going to do it, they reason, if the Democrats aren't going to use this language and this way of talking and this way of thinking, then, then, then we'll do it ourselves. Uh, and this is, you know, this is pioneered by a kind of the, the great evil political genius of our times, a guy called Richard Nixon uh, and his advisor, Pat Buchanan. Uh, and Ronald Reagan was very good at it. Ronald Reagan had a whole host of advisors who would call themselves populists. I mean, it was ridiculous, right? But it, it was all superficial. It was all, um, it was just, it was just for show pretending to be men of the people or whatever you want to call it, you know, pretending to be at war with what they called the elite. And they sold all kinds of terrible, terrible, terrible things using this language. And one of the reasons that they've succeeded at it, by the way, this is my, you, you, it's funny that you start out with that question because you just went, went straight to like, what is Tom Frank's grand theory of the last 40 years? It's this, that the Democrats abandoned their sort of traditional position as the, as the bearers of populism and allowed the right to steal it. And the right has gone from triumph to triumph in my lifetime and in yours. Uh, 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 I'm older than you, I think. But like I'm thinking, when, when did Thatcher get her start? It was 79, right? I mean, that's really the beginning of this great turn. And people even referred to Thatcher as a populist, you know, which is just, just utterly absurd. But the, the right stole this language uh, and they did it. I mean, right up front about it, there are all of these, uh, you know, books and articles that came out in the early 80s talking about the, you know, the new right as as a populist movement. Uh, and then, the, the, you know, then Newt Gingrich does the same thing. And the Tea Party movement does the same thing. George W. Bush does the same thing. I have a book down in the basement. I should I should go down there. We should pause this. I should go down there and get it. But it's called like... Um, uh, oh my God, what is it called? It's like George Bush is a rebel, right? George Bush is a rebel <laughs> against the Washington system. Rebel in chief, that's what it's called. George Bush is the rebel in chief. You know, he's like, yeah, he's, he's declaring war on countries that didn't do anything to us. And he's like, you know, deregulating Wall Street and he's bailing these guys out, but he's a rebel, Russell. And they are only able to get away with this. Can I get curse on your show? Yes, sir. 
they can only get away with this bullshit insofar as the traditional and rightful bearers of the populist tradition don't call them on it. And unfortunately, that's what has been happening. And the, 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 you know, the Democrats here in America have no intention of calling them on it and of, and of sort of, you know, recapturing uh, the, the sort of populist legacy. And so it goes on and on and on. I've been writing about this all my life, by the way. <laughs> it's, 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 in some ways, it's very tiresome to, you know, to repeat it again and again and again and have nobody give a damn, you know, nobody listens. They, they listen when I, they listen when I, when I'm, damn. I care, Tom. Uh, thank I you. care that's about so, the work you've done. That was very kind of you, Mr. Brand. But I'm, I'm here to tell you, they, they, they listen when I, I used to uh, spend a lot of time making fun of right-wingers, right? It was, it was fun, and at the time, nobody else was doing it. And, and, and that was very popular. But, but when, you, when, you, you know, when you turn the spotlight on the Democrats themselves and you say, look, this is happening because you allowed it to happen, mm. you know? That then it suddenly the, the the humor drains right out of it and the you know the the laughter stops and yeah. So these rhetorical flourishes and by God you've got a few of your own we've already witnessed uh, have been able to be occupied and performed because of the willful impotence of the left, their own recalcitrant abandonment of the population that they were formulated to serve, making it possible and plausible to echo and mimic those tropes without yes. any tethered intention to empower ordinary people. And you've made that yes, clear in your opening right. gambit. And to, to steal them is the word I would use, steal, yeah. Steal them, because no one's there. If you're not using them anyway, <laughs> Why not? Why not steal them? I appreciate that. In your book, you talked about you talked about the uh, the agricultural populist movement that I think coined the term populism. One of the things I'm interested in is how populism has come to be a kind of dirty word. And do you think that's an indication of this uh, abiding loathing that the professional class has of ordinary working people? Oh my God! Yes, of course, absolutely. It became they made it into a stereotype. They took the name of a really of 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 a you know of a, a a brave and even noble movement the people who made the made up the word and turned it into a, an insult uh and uh um so this has always been i mean just to take a few steps back um populism has always been a a, a subject a sort of an obsession of mine because i'm from kansas this is where i grew up and it was a movement that uh, back in the 19th century, Kansas was uh, was a pretty radical place, uh, was always signing up for this or that radical movement. Um, and in the 1890s, the, the farmers in Kansas got together and started a political party, took over the legislature, you know, tossed the Republicans out. It was quite dramatic. And uh, uh, they, they, their, their party was called the People's Party. But they said, you know, that's kind of a clunker of a name. We, we need to think of a better name. And one day I was I was actually, you know, I did the research and discovered where and when they uh, they came up with the word. And it was on a train traveling from Kansas City to Topeka. This is a road that uh, I've never ridden the train from Kansas City to Topeka, but I've driven that road many, 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 many times. But uh, it was on a train ride from Kansas City to Topeka. And these these guys in the People's Party were sitting around trying to come up with a with a with a name. And one of them or one of their friends 
uh, who spoke some Latin said, you know, the, the Latin word for people is populace. Why don't you call yourself <laughs> populists? And they were like, that's a great idea. And within within days, they had it in their newspaper. There's just some newspaper the populists. The, the People's Party had a lot of newspapers, this this um, reform movement in Kansas. They had newspapers in every small town. And for whatever reason, the Kansas State Historical Society collected all those papers. And so they still exist. You can you can read them. And um, there was one in some tiny town. I mean, uh, like population, like 500 people or fewer than that, actually. And it, and it, they used the word populist like this is this is days after this train ride in 1891. They used the word populist with a big exclamation point, at gigantic type, you know, populist exclamation point. Are you a populist? They loved this word. They, they knew they were on to something right away. They were very proud of it. And it caught on. Uh, and it, uh, you know, the, it, it would have astonished them to learn the way we use the word today. Basically, the meaning of it has been entirely inverted. OK, because the Populist Party, this this sort of rebel group in the 1890s was exactly the opposite of every, of, you know, of what of what people say today. It was not a racist movement by the standards of the day. It was the opposite. Uh, you know, it wasn't. Uh, 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 well, I mean, you go through it. It was, you know, all the all the, the the you know, wasn't authoritarian. It was deeply democratic. It was profoundly democratic. You know, they wanted to give everyone the vote. They wanted to protect the do all this stuff. They wanted to give um, they wanted, among other things, they were the first political party to demand um, women's suffrage. Uh, they had women leaders, which was extremely unusual for a political party in the eight. In fact, they did, didn't exist for in American politics in the 1890s. They were the only ones that did that. Uh, but you go on right on down the list. It was a profoundly democratic movement. But it, immediately the country, um, you know, the sort of the people who own America uh, perceived first they laughed at it. Right. They were like, this is a silly, you know, ridiculous movement coming out of Kansas, which is a ridiculous place. And uh, but by the middle of the 1890s, it was not a joke anymore. It looked like this movement of farmers and workers might actually win. How much time is that? Sorry, from inception to significance? About five years. Wow. So the 1890s, when they first appear on the scene and uh, 1896 is the sort of peak moment when the country is basically, uh, uh, you know, uh, as polarized as it's possible for uh, for a democracy to get people mm-hmm. are you know uh, just so angry with one another uh they, the 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 sort of the, the people who run america are turning against populism in mass and denouncing it and uh, there's this coming together of the elites so I, I should go back and tell some of the details of the story because it's kind of interesting it's kind of fun so this movement is a movement it's a it's a working cl- it's you know they're very upfront about this. It is a it is a, a movement of working class people, meaning farmers and industrial workers, coming together against monopolies, uh, against uh, uh, the power of bankers. Uh, uh, you know, trying to demand uh, uh, you know a, a democrat, a more democratic uh, electoral system. All this stuff. This is this is what populism was about. And they wanted, uh, you know, serious government intervention in the economy. They wanted the government to nationalize the railroads, nationalize the telegraph system, stuff like this. Um, a lot of criticism of the media was involved in this. They, you know, they were very critical of the, the you know, the, the big New York uh, newspapers of that time. 
but basically it was a very familiar social democratic party. It's this is about the same time as the Labour Party gets going in England and in Australia, social democrats in Germany. In America, this is this was the the, the this is what it was. It's the same thing, only they called themselves populists. And um they uh, they go from strength to strength. Just a quick oh, question. Uh, yep. Is okay. that a separate lineage then from what we would regard as the sort of the roots of communism, given that the winter uprising in 1917, or is this in some way rooted in Marxist principles? It, well, it, 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 they knew who Marx was and they would they would refer to him in their newspapers. Like I said, the populists had hundreds and hundreds of newspapers. And when you go to do research on them, that's how you do it. You read these papers. They knew who Marx was. Uh, and they would, uh, you know, they would quote him from time to time, but he was not there. What, you know, what I've learned about Marxists is that they regard Marx as this, uh, as the great genius, the man who figures everything out. Populists did not think that they were, um, that for them, the great genius was Thomas Jefferson, this, the man who wrote the Declaration of Independence, and um, and various other uh, people like that. They liked Henry George, for example. Um, there were some people associated with the British Labour Party that they really admired, but I'm their name escapes me now, but they were not particularly Marxists uh, that you could call them socialists. That would make sense uh, in describing a lot of their leadership. Anyhow, the, they're, uh, they're a movement of farmers and workers. Uh, it's very hard times for farmers in America back then. It was like permanent hard times for farmers. And they, uh, the idea was let's figure out a way out of this and let's use um, politics to solve the problem. I mean, it makes sense, right? And the ruling elite of America, you know, like I said, first they laughed at them, but as populism went from strength to strength, and then uh, terrible things started to happen. The economy went into a terrible um, recession. You had these gigantic strikes in America, including one that was as close to a general strike as we've ever seen. It was a railroad strike. They shut down everything. This is in 1894. And the leader of it, a guy called Eugene Debs, was a populist and then later became a, a leader of the Socialist Party in America. That's years later. Uh, there was a, the first ever March on Washington of unemployed people, also led by a populist. Uh, all of this stuff started happening. And then uh, big election, national election year comes, 1896. Uh, the, the president at the time was a Democrat. Guy called Grover Cleveland. Uh, the uh, Republican candidate was a guy called William McKinley, and they agreed on the important issues of the day, which were you defend banks, you defend what what was called the gold standard. You know what this was, right? The gold standard. This was no. It's a good time how, for you to explain that. Thanks. Yeah. So uh, uh, the American, the the dollar was based on the price of gold at the time. So was the British pound. So were most you know a lot of other currencies around the world. There was a you know. Uh, universal gold standard. And uh, the problem with the gold standard is that the supply of gold doesn't increase very much. It's gold is rare. <laughs> and so the price of gold doesn't increase. And this is the 1890s. The American economy is growing by leaps and bounds. This is one of the great, you know, uh, boom periods uh, in American capitalism, or it was until the recession started. But anyhow, so the economy is growing, the American population is growing, and the money supply is staying the same. And what that means is that the the the, uh, the, the number of dollars in circulation uh, can't you know keep up with the uh, the growing economy, and so the the value of the dollar grows and grows and grows. And this is called deflation. It's the opposite of inflation. You know, 
And uh, deflation is uh, is something that is considered by economists to be absolutely disastrous. It crushes people who borrow, and that's most of us. And farmers in the 1890s were a debtor class. They borrowed all the time. They borrowed every year. That's just that's how it worked when you were a farmer. And uh, it, deflation was bad for, well, for a lot of other people as well. Anybody that borrowed, it was great for bankers, by the way. But both the Republican and the Democrat in 1896 say, no, 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 we are, we are standing solid for the gold standard. There's going to be no reform while we are in charge. Never in a million years are we going to allow any of this stuff to happen. And then something absolutely crazy happened. Like I said, this is a time of terrible strikes, terrible recession, uh, and there is radicalism brewing all over America. And the populists think this is this is our moment. We are going to you know, we are going to win, basically. And then the Democratic Party comes together for their convention in Chicago in the summer of 1896. First thing they do, they're like, we're not renominating Grover Cleveland, the sitting president of the United States. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Uh-oh. Then they say, and we're turning against the gold standard. Uh, they, they have a huge debate about it. And they say, we're, we're done with the gold standard. We, the Democratic Party, and this is one of the two traditional parties in America that's been around forever. Uh, and th- this is a shocker. And then the next day, they nominate for pr- the presidency this 36-year-old congressman from Nebraska. By the way, in the U.S. Constitution, the cutoff for running for president is you have to be 35 This guy was 36. His name was William Jennings Bryan. He's the youngest candidate any party has ever nominated in in, in American history. And he is, by the standards of the day, um, well, people thought he was a radical. Uh, He's, you know, he gives this incredible speech to the uh, to the convention about uh, about what the gold standard has done to ordinary people. Uh, you know, to farmers, to workers, how it has ruined their lives. And uh, basically, it's a it's a it's a it's a defiant speech. It's really, you know, this extraordinary thing. And the convention is moved to nominate this guy for president. And um, the populists meet in their convention, uh, you know, a week or so later. And they say, well, what are we going to do? This guy just stole our, our he's stealing our language. He's stealing this is a theme that will come up again and again, people stealing their language. He's stealing our language. He just stole our main issue, which was the, the currency. You know, they wanted this currency reform. What are we going to do? Uh, and a lot of them were personal friends with this guy, William Jennings Bryan. And so they said, well, we'll nominate him also. We will join forces with the Democratic Party. And maybe we will get to choose some members of the cabinet or something like that. Uh, and and a lot of the populace say, no, 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 don't do it. Brian is not he's not one of us. He's not really a radical. He's uh, you know, he's a Democrat. We don't like the Democrats, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But they do it. They make this they make this sort of deal. Uh, they're going to they're going to they're, they're going to join forces with the Democrats. They're all in on William Jennings, Bryan, And it's going to be, you know, they call it the battle of the standards. The Republicans are for the gold standard. The Democrats and the populists are for what was called free silver, a silver standard. It's a it's complicated, Russell. By the way, t- just tell me when I need to shut up. 
You keep going. I'm really If you don't stop me, I, I, I'll, I'll just talk and talk and talk. Listen, I have questions and I have ideas and I, I want this to go in the same direction as you. But I've, I'm really, really enjoying your warm, avuncular, passionate style, your vivacious storytelling technique. Yeah, I'm, I'm round the campfire. I'm with you. The populists have made a pact with the Democrats. Some populists think the Democrats are going to sell them out and are just using their language in order to gain their popularity and won't follow through. On their uh, on their ideals, it's exactly. the battle of the standards. You 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 balked explaining to me the free silver standard, and uh, you know as a man, <laughs> yeah, still... it's just too complicated. Yeah, just the, I get basically... the idea. It's a different type of system for uh, yeah. underwriting the currency, but I'm I'm cool with where we are now. Now, what yeah. happens in this election, and how are the populists dis- are they betrayed, and how does the term become negative, and how does the Democrat and Republican Party become a sort of a, a shadow play marionette, senseless dance of democracy while ordinary people be they industrialists or agricultural are left out in the cold where they remain to this day how did this Very happen good, mr brand uh-huh. yes <laughs> well you took the words right out of my mouth but there's one <laughs> well, other uh, back really there. important well there's one other uh, one other aspect to the story that's uh, that's really amusing and this is the part that that um, uh, people can visit my website and see the the sort of uh, the residue of this, which is the establishment of America. And by establishment, I mean the capitalists, the uh, bankers, uh, the people that own the large corporations, the media, the media, of course, the newspapers of the day, uh, the uh, society preachers, uh, academics, uh, uh, presidents of universities, economists, all of these people come together in a kind of hysteria about what is happening, that the Democratic Party, they say, has been captured by radicalism. And the, the word and, and so they, they start to they populism is no longer a joke. Now, all of a sudden, they say populism is like a threat to our way of life. Populism is going to do is 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 anarchy. Populism is repudiation. Populism is going to destroy everything that we have known and loved about America. Uh, can I show you a, an image from that period? Yeah. I'm pull it off the wall. Oh, hold on. <laughs> this guy is incredible. He's just gone to grab a picture. He's the, temporarily, I'm looking at his book car, uh, bookcase listeners. And here he comes with a cartoon image now. At this moment, he's he looks very... Yes, I, I filled the time, Thomas. You don't need to worry. Now, let's have a look at this cartoon of yours. This is populism. Okay, do you see him there? Yeah, he looks like me. He's got a a French Revolution liberty cap. He's got a knife, a torch, and some guns. These are some Democratic politicians in the back that are pushing him forward. They're coming out of the West. You see the West with its ruined banks and its, you know, failed system. These these people are shiftless. They're they're uh, they're tattered. They're they're worthless people. Haven't they got some anti-Semitism in there? Looks like a sort of not not in this particular image, but there are other ones where there's a lot of anti-Semitism and anti-immigrant. Uh, 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 used against populism. These are the respectable. Okay, so they're waving the flag of capital, right? This is, uh, the, you know, what does it say? The uh, respectable Democrat, honest citizen, capitalist. I'm sorry, small investor, the banker, and they're running scared. Populism has got them on. <laughs> populism. Is I will point out them. that yeah. populism. It looks like me, right down to the hat he's wearing. <laughs> Yeah, kind of. It's but they so they were like populism is is uh, Robespierre. Populism is the French Revolution. Populism is uh, they say populism is mob rule. 
it is a bunch of you know people that basically they're the shorthand. What they mean when they start, they gin up this incredible campaign against uh, William Jennings Bryan and and the populists is that this is mob rule. This is the idea of this is people who have no business running America. People have no business, uh, uh, you know controlling anything the worst elements of society as they would put it are trying to tell us the you know respectable uh, the bankers the financiers the the able the best and the brightest they're trying to tell us what to do they're trying to tell us how to run things this is the world turned upside down is what populism anti-populism is fundamentally elitist They're, yeah that's the word that's the word i i, I made that up though anti anti-populist, or at least I thought I made it up. Once I published the book, of course, I discovered other people had used it already. But yes, so there's this, what I discovered is there's this tradition of this, of despising populism in exactly these terms. It's, it's a form of mental illness. It's mob rule. It's the, uh, the disreputable trying to lord it over their betters, all of that stuff. There is a tradition of this that goes from 1896 right now i mean <laughs> right yeah. it's happening right now, now. It's especially happening i mean yeah, it's especially yeah. happening and, and it's brilliant that you've um i've been able to convey its origins in this fashion now if i could just direct you to sort of a more recent history the question i'm sorry i should i should let you finish but the question is how did it go from being this is this is right-wing stuff defending capitalism defending yeah. bankers etc this is the republican party saying this stuff how and they're attacking a, a party on the left uh, a labor party right a party of workers who are very liberal etc cetera, etc cetera. how did it go from being did anti-populism go from being a a technique a rhetorical rhetorical technique of the right a very successful one by the way they demolished they crushed populism uh, very successfully to being a rhetorical technique of the left well i think i can answer that because both parties are fundamentally aristocratic and elitist and represent the same set of interests and whilst both sides are willing to use the lexicon of populism because it has fundamental truths in it that we ought have fraternity solidarity equality that we ought empower ordinary people and whilst there are necessary value systems that may or may not lead to hierarchies what we don't need is what we have now a globalist technocratic dystopia where ordinary people are not only dispossessed but they are slandered abused disavowed and what's required precisely now in this moment is a new form of populism that is true to its original principles democracy the thing that we're offered and pledged continually communities run by the people for the people this is precisely what needs to be augured in this historic moment this moment now where the democrat party uh, present populism as um, as you in the terms that you have outlined as mob rule as vulgare to use another latin word that aligns neatly with populare so what do we do like many of the conversations I have, Thomas, are about the the implausibility of ever again inhabiting the Democratic Party in a meaningful way. We've seen the Bernie Sanders experiment fail. We've seen the Democrat Party would rather lose to Trump than win with Bernie. We've seen yep. then. By the but, way, yeah, but don't let's not brush off Bernie. So 
lightly that there is still life in this tradition and sanders is the bernie sanders is the sort of is the is the bearer of it and he, yeah, he but did we've, inspire but, but a lot of I people recognize now, that but it's happened it failed yeah, it's not yeah. coming back we've seen how the democratic party handled it what i want to talk about is what now where do you think American politics, their state of American politics, and like a hope that trickle-down economics works at least in some ideological format, and that Britain will eventually receive... By the way, trickle-down, is, that is a phrase that Brian, uh, William Jennings Bryan uh, coined, more or less. He, that, that's where it comes from. Was, uh, okay, keep going. You're brimming, 1896, that's where, that, that's where that phrase comes you're from. You're shifting in your chair. You're feckless. You're cultish. Your barber's, <laughs> your barber's resigned through crushed morale. <laughs> Um, like what I want to ask you is what kind of political like let's think for a moment about like yeah, European politics the rise of Podemos the rise of Syriza that you know that came about in that same post two thousand and one moment of disillusionment and now in the, like now that we have a, a, a failed Democrat party now that we have a Republican party still harping after Trump now in British politics where there is despair and disillusionment on mass in this post pandemic era on the precipice of apocalypse where do we go with populism what kind of pledges do we make what vehicles do we use can this become an international and globalist movement do we need to still be confined by nationalism where do we go with populism now is it about getting influence within existing parties or is it about creating a manifesto and creating our own structures adjacent to uh, bipartisan models oh jesus Yes. <laughs> it's quite a question, Mr. Brand. What do you think I'd do? <laughs> so, you know, it's, uh, it's much, and we'll come to this in a minute, but, but it's much easier for me to talk about the past. Because you're a historian. Yeah, or I, I used to be one anyways. I mean, I'm, Even I'm that's history. I, say, say that again? Even you being a historian's history. Yeah, yeah, that's right. No, I, I write. Yes, yeah, right. And there's a big part of this book that's actually what they call historiography. It's a history of historians. I'm fascinated by that. But uh, I'm much more comfortable talking about that than about 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 where do we go? Because I'm. Uh, I mean, what does the past suggest? Because it seems to me that the reason you're writing well, about I, this, I can tell you, I'm, I'm like obsessed uh, by it. Is I can tell you, you what I've relevant. always argued. Tell me. So one of, one of the romantic things about the populist movement was that it was the last successful third party movement. Uh, in our history, uh, they, you know, these were these were people that, that had given up on the, the two main parties and started their own, and they were uh, they were they were fairly successful. I mean, by the time they, and uh, by the way, after 1896, just to wind up the story, they they after they had sold out to the Democrats, and the Democrats got beaten in this incredible torrential downpour of anti-populism. Uh, by the way, uh, backed by the largest sort of war chest we've ever seen in American politics. After that, the, the Populist Party fell apart pretty quickly. And uh, uh, and that was the end of it. And after it fell apart, the uh, various states where it had been strong all passed laws to make sure that it never happened again, that you never had another third party or another serious third party challenge to the two main parties. Uh, and this took different forms in different states. And, and we don't need to go into that here. But um, well, in, in, except for in one way in the South, what they did is they disenfranchised people. They disenfranchised the black population and a lot of poor whites. Uh, and that was in a lot of states done overtly to make sure that populism never happened again, that you never saw this effort to bring together 
you know, working class people like that or farmers. And uh, anyhow, they did all the various things to make sure that you could never have another uh, successful third party movement. And unfortunately, uh, a lot of those laws are still on the books, not the disenfranchisement stuff, but a lot of the other stuff that they did. And which basically means that it is impossible in this country to challenge uh, the two parties, which is deeply frustrating and deeply dysfunctional in all sorts of ways, because I mean, this is something I'm sure you're aware of. The two parties are forever coming to agreement with one another on things and refusing to debate the real issues. They do this all the time. Say the question of trade, you know, uh, Reagan and George Bush Sr. negotiated these free trade deals. Clinton and the Democrats got them passed. They're like, yeah, we're all we all agree on this stuff. Well, that's not very healthy. For a democracy, you need to have debate about these things, you know, and there's so many other issues, you know, the, all this, all the things associated with neoliberalism, the two parties came to agreement on that. Well, that's bullshit, you know. Yeah, and, it's not uh, democracy. But, yeah, but if you if the if these factions control the party machinery and you can't get through, then it's it's very difficult in this country. And so that for a lot of people are drawn to populism because it's this kind of romantic moment when our ancestors uh, broke away from the two-party system and uh, you know, challenged it, et cetera. But I don't even know if that's possible anymore, Mr. Brand. And I'll just tell you, my, all my life, I have put my faith in these sort of um, you know, insurgent movements within the Democratic Party. You know, I liked uh, Jesse Jackson when I was in college. I thought he was the greatest thing in the world. Uh, you know, I, I like I like Bernie Sanders, you know, basically. Uh, and, I, you know, I've fallen for a whole series of these guys. Uh, Howard Dean, you know, uh, and I, I keep counting on them to succeed one of these days. Oh, God, I, I, I thought Obama was like the greatest thing in the world. <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, I'm I'm open to. Uh, to basically anything now because i don't my 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 route has not succeeded what's fascinating though is that in the republican party this this asshole billionaire this tv billionaire was able to go in and destroy it and to wreck the establishment of the of the republican party that was actually kind of inspiring when trump you know he had the the 17 republicans or whatever it was <laughs> he beat them all including a the, the, you know a, a representative of the bush family that was uh I liked that. Trounced that was, them. Uh, that and when we spoke to Matt Tybee about that uh, on this show, and he, he was sort of covering that election and indeed the primaries. And he said that there a wonderful moment was when he pointed out that Jeb Bush's campaign ma manager was a member of J the Johnson, as in Johnson and Johnson family. And Trump was able to say, do you think this guy is going to regulate pharma prices? His campaign yeah, manager yeah. is from the pharmaceutical industry. And here in microcosm, we are able to see how how the rise of right-wing populism is due to inertia and inactivity on the left. He, the fissures that opened up for Trump are justly and deftly occupied. What I'm going to say to you now, Thomas, is what does populism look like in government? We've seen how its rot rhetoric can be mobilised to create votes and to create electoral success. But in the event of a true populist government rising up, what does that look like? Devolution, confederacy, empowerment of community, more direct democracy. What does it look like? What are the principles that are at play? Well, it, it, we actually have a really good example of that. Uh, it looks like uh, the, 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 the presidency of Franklin Roosevelt 
here in America. This guy was as close as, and his successor, Harry Truman, these guys were as close to the populist tradition as it's, uh, as it's possible to get. Uh, used a lot of the same language as the populists. There was a, a whole sort of, uh, it was the era of the common man. There was this kind of uh, uh, this cultural faith in ordinary people that swept over America in the, in the course of the 1930s. You know what I'm talking about, the sort of WPA art uh, these murals that they would that the government would paint yes. uh, on post office walls and stuff like There's that. One or in the Rockefeller seen... Center, I think, done by Frida Kahlo's husband. Uh, yes, they tore that down, but that was not. <laughs> yeah, oh. that. But that's a perfect example of it. Diego Rivera, he's one of my one of my heroes. And uh, uh, the uh, I was thinking of the movies of Frank Capra, which are all about the sort of. Um, uh, the wisdom and the basic goodness of average American citizens, especially when they're thrown up against these conniving bankers and stuff like that. Well, I can see why where the problems lie, because it's a kind of folk politics, isn't it? And another way of saying folk politics is Volk Politico. <laughs> <laughs> and you know which direction we're heading in now. So, like, no, you know, no, wait a minute. I'm talking about the guy that kicked Hitler's ass. I'm talking about Frank FDR here. We, 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 this is like. He it, may we, have given we, his ass a nudge with a wheel, but him. But He's in no position to kick it now. Like now, but but, uh, but uh, no, but I mean seriously, the the uh, the uh, the sort of great bearer of the spirit of populism in the 1930s was a labor union uh, here in America called the CIO, which stands for Congress of Industrial Organizations or something like that, and the, they were uh, militant. They were a mass movement. They would sign up anyone, as opposed to in in the past, uh, American labor had been like focused on you know highly skilled, et cetera, like that. The CIO would, would sign up anybody and they were militantly anti-racist. If you go back and look at their, at their pamphlets and their literature, they were, you know, this was a big part of their, of their creed. And, and, and obviously they were, they were, uh, they became very close to the Roosevelt administration. Their leadership did. And, you know, the hugely massively into the war effort against fascism. And so I would say, you know, the, the that is, uh, it is thanks to popular. I mean, America, so many of the countries in, in Western Europe had no idea what to do during the 1930s. Their system was falling apart. But in this country, popular, I mean, the 30s was um, this was an era of fantastic political success and great you know, social advance in this country. This is when you get the, the, the welfare state is put into position. This is when we first start regulating big business. The whole populist agenda gets enacted. We actually, they, we went off the gold standard. <laughs> they finally got their way. <laughs> Yeah. But, but this is all Roosevelt. In this instance, when when you're describing this, you're talking somewhat about sort of uh, again rhetorical flair and a sort of political stylings and aesthetics. I.e., it's about kind of a, a but respect there's reality and love. too. But reality. also, you're talking about socialism. You're not like there's no like what is distinctly populist well, in government as opposed to socialist. We don't, although I recognise we don't use that word <laughs> We don't use that word here for Franklin Roosevelt. We we need something else, and so uh, the the populist is the word that I choose. But but he basically enacted a whole lot of the populist program. All the stuff about uh, uh, you know they broke he broke up the banks among other things. Remember, and Sanders was always talking about returning to that. Uh, he, uh, you know, the, all of these uh, farm programs uh, basically got you know overcame the farm crisis once and for all. 
you know, you go right down the list. These are very, these were very real changes in American life. I mean, and they manifested in the most, you know, massive way. This is a time when wealth in America basically becomes democratized. This is the birth of the middle class. And, and by the way, Roosevelt was, you know, massively popular. Uh, one reelection on in these kind of crushing, overwhelming ways. By the way, the, the, the Republicans in 1936, Roosevelt's up for re-election. The Republicans basically dust off the playbook of 1896, and they're like, we're going to try this again. And they all come together. It's once again a gathering of the elites, and they, they gin up this kind of hysteria about class war and the less worthy members of the community trying to lord it over the, their betters. And they, there's a lot of racism mixed in with this because this was the heyday of scientific racism, and they would, you know— uh, the, the, the people on the bottom are on the bottom because they are biologically meant to be on the bottom. All this kind of bullshit, right? And Roosevelt destroyed them. He absolutely crushed them in one of the most like overwhelming electoral wipeouts of all time. And so th this time, anti-populism completely failed. And the, the sort of populist strategy, you know, romped. And Roosevelt is the most successful. He won. He was reelected four times. And then Harry Truman, who was his vice president uh, and took over when Roosevelt died, uh, got elected a fifth time. All of it, each time with uh, this deeply populist language. Uh, Truman, in some ways, was even more so than Roosevelt. Truman was our last president who didn't go to college, uh, who had actually been a farmer in Missouri. Yeah. Uh, and uh, also was the first president that was really committed to civil rights. That was the first time that happened was, was, was Harry Truman. But uh, yeah, but, the, and that was, uh, you know, for most of my childhood, that was, those guys built the system that all that we lived in. They built the middle-class society. They made it all possible. Uh, you know, the interstate highway system, suburbia, uh, you know, uh, going to, you know, basically free higher education or very, very cheap higher education, all that stuff. Uh, and, and as well as the, the social security, uh, you know, uh, Medicare, that, well, that came a little bit later, but this was all stuff that they had done. And we lived in that world. And the Democrats were the dominant party in America up until 1994, the dominant party in America because of that legacy, uh, because that was so popular, right? And it obviously it served the vast majority of people in this country who are, uh, yes, working class people. They, I don't know if this is, if you're aware of this, Mr. Brand, but working class people outnumber the rich. <laughs> Let me just have a quick look at how a proletariat works. You know, some of the industrial workers, oh, a fat yeah. cat at the top there. I see. Yeah, no, that, that, that all stacks up, Tom. But then the, the, the Democratic Party decided beginning in the 70s and gaining speed in the 80s that they were going to turn their back on this tradition. And they were that the New Deal was over or that it needed to be over or something like this. And we'd entered a new era of globalization and high tech and all of this crap. And the Democratic Party needed to become a party of a different group uh, who they would they, they came up with all these different terms for them. They would call them the creative class or the learning class or the wired workers. And you know who I'm talking about here. It's people with, uh, it's white collar, people with advanced degrees, uh, well-to-do. And that's, that's what they, they, they deliberately decided to abandon the Roosevelt legacy and to become this other thing. And they did it. 
and they lost Congress. They had Congress from the year 1930 to the year 1994 with uh, two very brief interregnums. And then they lost it and they've never got it back. And they're not the majority party anymore. Thomas, and, uh, you talked about how like that how populism first emerges from a time of great polarization. Do you feel that America is at such a time right now, once again, a time of mass cultural polarization? And do you think that these could uh, counterintuitively once more form the bedrock for a new emergent form of politics? Well, yeah, of course. Definitely. Look, the, the polarization that's going on now is just it's 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 awful. Uh, you know, it's all about uh, culture wars and questions of taste and manners and, uh, you know, uh, and of you know people in higher ed. Well, basically people in authority all over the country constantly reasserting their authority against anybody that questions it. It's 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 dreadful. None of my none of my issues are, are even on the table, you know, OK, with a few exceptions. But the stuff that I care about doesn't matter anymore. But I keep looking back at this history that I just described. This is this is my problem, Russell Brand. And I've said the same thing over and over for 20 years. And I'm frankly kind of tired of it. But I look back at that history, you know, that that that, that a Democratic Party that was oriented towards populism triumphed. And did great things and won World War II and, and rolled back the Depression and built the middle class, you know, and built this country. It's all thanks to that. And it also was, uh, you know, popular. And these guys won, you know, constantly for 50 years. Sorry, for 60 years. It went on and on and on. It rolled and rolled and rolled. Why would you turn your back on that? If you're the Democratic Party, why would you do that? And I, 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 honest to God, to this day, I don't get it. They know what works. They know how to win. They just won't do it. Well, I suppose the reason is that they're ultimately controlled by the same set of centralized interests that have historically dominated the Republican Party and that it took some time to interrupt that potential conflict between two wings of a political system, one of which was less favorable. The way to do it yeah. is to fund both of them and ensure whatever the result of an election, the outcome is yes. other than... That is exactly right. But it, well, it's not exactly right, but it's, it's, it's close. And that's, you know, the, the I'll, I'll tell you a little anecdote. So and, and and it's just it you know I wrote this book what twenty years ago now about the Republican Party it was called What's the Matter with Kansas um, and we'll 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 I I can tell you all the the joke about the title some other time but it was about the Republican Party reaching out to uh, white working class people to the sort of traditional rank and file of the Democratic Party and uh, and how they did it using very populist language and they and they succeeded. And, you know, I said at the time, this is, there's a really easy way to stop this. You know, yeah, you can appeal to these people with these culture war issues and you can, you can make up new culture war issues all the time, which as we know, that's what they do, right? Fox news, etc. But there's a really, if you're the Democrats, there's a very easy way to stop this, right? Because these are, these are your traditional voters, they used, there was a reason they used to vote for you, <laughs> you know, figure out what that reason was and you can get them to vote for you again. And there's been zero interest in doing that. 
Zero. All the interest is just in now in scolding those people, scolding them, scolding them, scolding them, calling them names. And it's like that's not going to solve the problem. And, and but but in the in that time, something really freaky has happened. And this is what I wanted to tell you about, which is when I was young, the Democratic Party was, you know, the, the party of Roosevelt, et cetera, the party of William Jennings Bryan. And they didn't have a lot of money. Uh, they would win elections, but not because they had a lot of money. They would win elections because they had more, you know, they, ha- they were, they had the people. The Republicans had the money. So like Reagan, the Republic- Republican candidates for the presidency were always better funded than the Democrats. All, like if you look at Reagan versus Mondale in 1984, it was just a wipeout. Reagan, you know, outraised and outspent him by you know, five to one or something like that. And, uh, Something really freaky has happened in the last few years, and it began with Bill Clinton, which is that the Democrats, uh, when they they started, they became friendly with Wall Street. They joined in on the neoliberalism, deregulating Wall Street. They joined in on the free trade agreements, and they started to um, be able to fundraise as, as well as the Republicans. And you finally, with Barack, Barack Obama, actually outraised. Uh, John McCain in 2008. That's I think with the with the with the financial industry, but it may have been overall. And then uh, Hillary Clinton massively outraised Donald Trump, and so did um, uh, so did Joe Biden. And so the the shoe is entirely on the other foot. And let me just tell you about that. So I grew up in this part of Kansas City that was very well to do, like really like like ludicrously like flaunting your money kind of place. And my family was not like that, but I grew up among those people. Like they're the children of the r- ruling class were my playmates, right? They were, they owned the place. They owned Kansas city. They owned the state of Kansas. And uh, uh, those people were, uh, I thought at the time when I was a kid, these are the most Republican people I'm ever going to meet in my life. The Republicans controlled every local office uh, you know, the, everybody was I mean, I remember once going to vote. I was I was a registered Democrat. This is in the 80s. And I went to vote and they had this thick book of all the registered Republican names. And the, the names of the registered Democrats was a, a single sheet of paper. Well, that neighborhood, Mr. Brand, just went for Joe Biden won every single precinct. They've completely flipped the ruling class of that city in that state has completely flipped. It's the it is the freakiest thing. And my my whole like life was defined. You know, I was a little punk rocker and all that shit. And it was all defined by being uh, uh, not being those people. (laughs) And now what do I say? (laughs) Well, I suppose, Thomas, you're going to have to start another party or participate at least in another party that adheres to some of the principles that as you say guided the democratic party so well but even in the inception of populism you can see that there was a pact that undermined its efficacy and even with the interruption of roosevelt there and truman uh, and, and who, who who am i to lyndon, under, I was, undermine- lyndon johnson that's where it all broke broke down because lyndon johnson also, you know, great guy on domestic front, got the civil rights bills passed, got Medicare passed, but then was like, hey, I got this great idea, the Vietnam War. <laughs> and this turned into like this was just broke the part, the Democratic Party in half, you know, broke them in two. And they've never recovered from that. 
Anyhow, I'm sorry. You, 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 you didn't want to hear any of this crap. I just, I, I just blab and blab. I apologize. I'm, no, no, it's a, you're a, a fascinating man. What I'm, uh, what I'm interested in now is what we do with a situation where we, where there is a requirement, it seems, not for a rehashing of the, the kind of politics we've seen in the last 20 and 30 years since 1984 when um, the Democrat Party changed its funding policy and, and since the Republican Party were able to ape uh, populist rhetoric with no fear of repost from their opponents. How do, uh, what I'm interested in... I like in, the way you put that, by the way. Thank you. Well, I, I mean, always pronounce it ripost, but that's, I'm from Kansas. <laughs> I mean, it's surely ultimately a French word, but I would say if we're going to anglicize it, let's do it with an Englishman. All right. Yeah, you got it. So uh, my, suggest my uh, area of interest remains the application of populism in a left-wing context. Now, you know, to my earlier point about Bannon, Bannon understood something. and, and uh, the, Yeah, the, the he does get it, by the way. He's, yeah, he does. He, he, and, and, uh, and Pat Buchanan before him and, I, and Carl Rove also, all, these, all of these kind of... Uh, uh, and there's another guy called Richard Vigory. These are all these kind of uh, political geniuses behind the Republican Party. And they all uh, they all have been deeply into swiping populist rhetoric from the other side. Uh, all of them know the value of that. Um, and it only goes forward. It, it, it only succeeds because my team has has so given up on all this. Yeah, and are not Sorry, willing you, you to. Already. Yeah, are not willing to implement populist policy, which to or my mind, or even talk the language. They won't even. They won't even talk the language. <laughs> the language, okay. in and of itself, I to tell you the truth, isn't. You know, like we've seen that you can use the language and create elitist results. You know, what what I'm interested in is what it looks like as a real politic. What it looks like when when ordinary people are able to govern their own communities are able to disrupt the power of the establishment pillars and are able to organize their their country, their county, their state and their nation yeah. in accordance with ordinary principles. Because what we've got now are hollowed out institutions, hollowed out communities. And I think we sort of are now in this somewhat febrile time in part because there is no access to democratic process for ordinary people. It creates lethargy, apathy and conversely, rage and i don't see that changing yeah. unless a new and, political and, and movement it, emerges it, it it's and so you you're, you're putting your finger on a really important part of the tradition which is that the populace believed in mass democracy i mean they really believed in this and they believed in settling everything by the vote now this does not mean that they were anti-intellectual or that they thought that stupid people should rule they thought that this is democracy this is just what it is you have to educate the people if you want them to understand things, mass education via pamphlets or books or, or I don't know, podcasts or whatever. But 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 mass democracy is essential. And they were forever coming up with schemes to open up more and more parts of political life to the vote, you know, to democratize things. I think we're heading in the opposite. And, and then remember, populism was crushed by these uh, these guys in the South that took the vote away. Uh, that uh, that disenfranchised a huge part of the southern population, uh, and uh, we are—I mean, that's not on the table right now. But you see uh, echoes of that on both in both the uh, the right and in the sort of uh, professional class left. 
uh, the 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 right obviously is forever coming up with gerrymandering schemes and you know ways of 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 uh, of cheating uh you know at 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 the cheating at the ballot box uh and 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 winning in that way they do this all the time in america but there is simultaneously a surrender among liberals on you know they they don't believe in democracy anymore they think that you know uh, you let people have a say and they will demand a say in like how their children are taught, which, by the way, is totally healthy and normal. This was a big issue in um, across the river from me in Virginia in this last election. And my team, Democrats, are against that now. <laughs> you know, we're all about expertise and we're even about what, I, what blows my mind is we're even about censorship now. I just I can't. The change in my lifetime has been so incredible. You know, when I was coming up as a as a as a young liberal, that was like one of the defining things of the the movement that I thought I was signing up with was that we believed in in uh, in free speech. We believed in everybody having their say, even when their opinions were ridiculous or reprehensible. And now you've got these Democrats who are forever leaning on uh, social media companies to stifle certain voices. And it's gotten much worse during the uh, during the pandemic. I mean, I wrote a while ago on something on the what's the lab leak hypothesis, and we still haven't figured out whether you know where the where COVID came from, right? We still don't know the answer to that. It's not definitive one way or the other yet. But for a long time, you could not even talk about the possibility that it that that this that this pandemic began as some kind of lab accident. By the way, and, and lab accidents, you know, are not implausible. It happens all the time. Uh, uh, you couldn't even talk about that because the sort of forces of professional authority had persuaded the social media companies that this was impermissible, that this was an unacceptable conspiracy theory. Now that, my friend, that is nuts. And that's my team doing that. Hemingway said... Uh, a lot of people just don't know they're fascists until circumstances show them <laughs> that they are. And I think we've seen a lot of that. So, Thomas, thank you so much. That has been a magnificent hour of conversation, of education, of illumination. Oh, I'm, just, of great I'm just getting started. I what do you mean? You, we're, we're done? What That's is it. This? That's what, that was the experience. <laughs> and magnificent it was too. You unpacked so much there. I learned a great deal about populism, its reappropriation, the the misuse of its semiotics. It's been a, a fantastic conversation. And I, I, for one, hope that you and I will get an opportunity to speak again and, and perhaps even collaborate on bespoke little projects i've got a few ideas for uh, for you and i particularly oh, i've got a good one by the way now that i know you're, you're we'll so talk, we'll talk about it some other time <laughs> i would love that thomas it's so lovely to talk with you you're fantastic yeah, I, i'm sorry that i talked so much that's what you're uh, here to do is exactly what we need you to do you're a perfect enthusiastic guest you bring it you you, you illustrate your stories so beautifully i was captivated thank you all right russell that's very kind of you oh you're a lovely man thank you Thank you for listening to Under the Skin. That's Thomas Frank we've just been chatting to. Let me know what you thought of it on Instagram. Tag me at Russell Brand or tweet me at Rusty Rockets with a hashtag Under the Skin. And remember, come and see me on tour. Blackpool in particular, I'm hawking because I've got a massive venue, right? And like Blackpool's middle of nowhere. People have got to know that I'm doing meditation there. Even if you've been and seen me before, come see me again because I'm going to do additional meditations and questions and answer in Blackpool in particular. Go to russellbrand.com. Get your tickets now. Also, if you're not meditating... Get above the noise. You've already got it. It's free. You've paid for it by being a Luminary subscriber. Every week I do a guided meditation. And if you enjoyed this conversation, why don't you listen to John Barnes? Why? 
Uh, class and economics. Class, yeah, that's really cool. John Barnes, British footballer. Brilliant. Have a listen to him. Or Sarah Chase. She also f- felt very um, grassroots. Grassroots. Didn't she? She lived in a cabin and it was all reminding me of America. Maybe that was just me. You like the pastoral. I got it. Okay, keep checking out my YouTube channel for new videos. And thank you for listening to Under the Skin from Luminary. <laughs>